welcome to the show. All right, that's enough from the audience. We got a packed house here. All right, settle down. We're at the office bar and grill. This is the show, our New York Post baseball podcast. We're coming from the office bar and grill on North Broadway here in sunny Los Angeles. The weather is beautiful. Tip your bartenders. Big thanks to the office for having us. This episode of the show is presented by your tri-state Cadillac dealer. Shout out to Cadillac. Go to your Cadillac showroom today. Without further ado, we got a special guest here. Let's welcome in the host of the show. I'm Jake Brown, by the way, the producer of the show. Shout out to Andrew Hartz, our other producer who is remote today. Here's the host of the show. First, he's been covering baseball, the New York Post, what, since 1989 now? Over 30 years covering America's national pastime. You can also catch him on MLB Network. Let's welcome in the pride of... Brooklyn! Joel Sherman, everybody! Give it up for Joel Sherman. His co-host is a newbie at the New York Post. He's in his first season here at the newspaper, but he's no stranger to covering the game of the baseball. He's been covering it since the 80s, spending years at Newsday, SI, CBS Sports, and so much more. He's also been on the MLB Network for over a decade. Give a warm welcome to the man that had his bar mitzvah at Temple Sinai (laughs) on Long Island. It's John Heyman. Wow, it is just a sold-out crowd here at the Office Bar and Grill, and our special guest in the building. We're so glad to have him. He is the biggest sports agent on the planet. Let's just keep it real. He's representing last night's Home Run Derby champion. What timing from Juan Soto, along with some of the biggest names in baseball. If we went through the whole list, the podcast would be over. Let's welcome to the show Super Agent, founder, owner, and president of the Boris Corporation, and a California native, a local guy, Scott Boris! Without further ado, let's open the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman and Scott Boris. Joel, take it away. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, I can't wait for the rest of the WWE (laughs) card to be played out here. Uh, You know, Scott on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. First of all, thank you for joining us. Usually we open with a news segment before we go to a guest. You are the news segment. You represent the guy who, the biggest player in the trade market right now. You represent the top three picks in the draft. You represent some of the biggest players, especially in our market in New York that we'd like to talk about. And look, it's hard to be here. Uh, The introduction included that Juan Soto won the home run derby last night. So why don't we start with Juan Soto? I think talking to you over these last few months as we anticipated this, you seem to think that it is too valuable a player, especially for a new incoming ownership group, maybe for him to be dealt. Have you changed your mind at all? Do you think this great 23-year-old player is going to be traded before August 2nd at 6 p.m.? I think if I was in the market and I'm a billionaire and I'm purchasing a team, I would want choice of determining if I'm going to build around one of the game's greatest young superstars or if I want to go through a rebuild. And I would want to know 
the who's and the why's. I would choose players who I would trade Juan Soto for. So therefore, it's pretty clear to me that the franchise value of this club is uh, really, I think, escalated to a much higher level when the new owner has that choice. Because I think if you've one thing you learn from being around billionaires, they certainly like their choices, no doubt. Right. Right. Well, not only is one Soto on the block now, but so are the Nats. So we understand that they may be sold. We think it's a pretty good likelihood. So I, I certainly understand that. I wanted to ask you about the negotiation that was kind of silent until it came up a couple of days ago when it came out. I think Ken Rosenthal first reported that uh, he had turned down $440 million for 15 years and he was now available. Could you tell us exactly about that negotiation and what went through uh, Juan's mind and what, why he decided what he, what he did decide to do, which was to not accept that deal? Well, certainly Juan is sought after by the organization. And, uh, and, and obviously, my job is that you listen and give the information to the player. Um, the player, obviously, is someone I work for, and they're in complete control over uh, what the decision-making is. And what you want to do is that once the contact comes, you ask the player how, you, how he wants you to pursue it. Um, then you sit down and you talk with the ownership. And, um, and the Lerner family, really, having dealt with them for you know, since they bought the team in the mid-2000s, they've been a winning ownership. They've been people that have said, how do we construct a team that can win? And um, Ted Lerner, Mark Lerner, and, uh, and the Lerner family on the whole, have that was their objective, and they achieved it. Um, now we're without the Lerner family. Uh, Juan Soto uh, has a ring on his finger, and he, has, he had people that he knows and trusted. Uh, ever since his inception with the franchise. But now that group of people has said we're going to move on and assign this team uh, uh, to uh, uh, another group. Uh, there are many groups involved, I'm told. But when you're a player, you can talk about being offered things, but it doesn't carry with it the intentions and the security of winning the goals of the player that are beyond economic. And so... For one, you can look at why and how they would do that, and they've certainly been attempting to do this for a while, and one has said, I want to make sure I know who and why and what this organization is going to do. Uh, it's kind of a ghost contract offer, because you're saying, here, here is a lump sum of, of money. Um, and I think the group knew from everyone is that great young players have certainly positioned themselves through their performance. And the rarity of Juan Soto, this is from 19 to age 23, is where he's really separated himself to be in a very small group among Major League history of performance levels. So they're going to be at the highest order of average annual values, and yet the proposal placed him in the bottom 15 or 20, or I should say the uh, well below the top uh, group and in the 15 or 20 range. And, and obviously that made the contract um, something that was um, really not even in the range of consideration and because players are, are obviously expect to be 
treated historically. And when, you have, when you're the greatest young player in the game and you have youth and you're going to be a 26-year-old free agent, I've never had, I, not since A-Rod, have I had a player that's been that good and that young of a free agent. And so we have certain models that we've looked at about what the demand will be for those players. And certainly it includes, you know they're going to get the extraordinary years. You know that they're going to get the appropriate AV, and you're also going to look at revenue streams to determine what the new element of baseball is, and certainly things that deal with past markets and 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 such don't really allow for um, the relevancy of a of a contract to be looked at. So there, there's a lot of components there, and certainly one has decided that that this is something that he's going to want to know a lot more about the ownership before he does things. You know, Scott, I wonder if we could, you know, you, you talked very large cap there. I wonder if we could focus a little more. So, like, you had an older player in Max Scherzer, and you got a record amount per annum. And you've had young players like Bryce Harper or A-Rod who you've gotten long-term for. You're essentially talking with this kind of player of marrying both, correct? Like, this is the kind of player who age 19 to 23, has so distinguished himself that he should get per annum top of the market and 23 through 30, whatever, get length. Am I correct in how no, you're seeing it's, this? It's really no different than what we did when, I, when we had A-Rod's contract because that's exactly what happened. Is that you, look at, you look at the revenue structure of the game, and I always tell players, if revenues go up, then the contract values of players will go up. If revenues go down, then your valuation to the system will go below. So... Uh, again, the parameters and the models you look at are revenues, and then you go from there and you say, does that model apply to this market? And, and certainly it does because you have a player of extraordinary merit, plus you have a history of performance that is really exceptional by age. And in Bryce's case, Bryce had a great MVP season, but he also had injuries that the next couple seasons that – that affected his war and his performance that didn't allow him to get to where he became in Philadelphia when he's healthy back again, being an MVP level player. And so uh, in Juan's case, obviously he's, he's performed at that level. And, and as you can see from last night continues <laughs> to, to uh, do things that, that extraordinary players do. Just, just a, he won the home run derby last night. Yes. yes. Um, you know, you mentioned A-Rod, obviously. Uh, we're talking about a, a you know, once in certainly decade or maybe generation type player. Uh, when you did the A-Rod deal, I think the highest paid player was Kevin Brown at $15 million. And then A-Rod got $25.2 million. So he got 67% more than the highest. I mean, I think the Nats thought that the Scherzer mentioned uh, was inappropriate because they thought it wasn't relevant. It's only a three-year deal. Um, I mean, you know, I'm wondering now um, how Soto compares to A-Rod because if you're talking about a 67% bump of Scherzer, you're now talking about adding $27 million to it. You know, we're not talking about a uh, $70 million a year deal, are we? Are we what, what kind of thing is this guy worth? I mean, obviously... He's an incredible, incredible talent. But you've, you've got it up there so far already with $43 million. I mean, how much higher can it go? Well, again, uh, we don't – I'm not talking specifically about Juan Soto. I'm just talking about markets now because this is something that is far afield of an individual player. The model, uh, the laissez-faire system of baseball is, is a good business. 
some owner has to decide that something is good business for them based upon their specific revenues and the revenues of the industry for a player. So when people have always asked me how high will it go, well, the question is, is it a good business decision for someone to go out and bring a player of this stature to your market? And and the, the one thing you know about unknowns is that, frankly, they're very known when it comes to extraordinary talent. And everybody says, what, what, what could that bring? And that's the unknown you're mentioning. And I said, the known is whatever it will bring will be based upon demand and good business decisions to uh, support a, uh, a market and a decision. So it's very hard for, for everyone when you're doing the calculus of this. And I always base it on talent and production. Uh, and I look, and then we study the revenues, and then we try to put the two together at the time that you make that the, that decision. So the model for this of the unknown becoming the known is frankly well established. And the fact that we have veteran players who are in the market and they get contracts of lesser length than that of a great young star, that has never been a prohibitive measure or a restraint for how we look at what good business decisions are going to be. And they look at what's the model for the AAV of the day and what the revenues of the day are. Yeah, I mean, they, their position is that the Scherzer deal isn't relevant because it's a shorter deal. I think they, they told you that and they then suggested, we'll give them the Scherzer deal, a three-year uh, three deal. Um, ha, ha, you, you said you think every contract is relevant if it's in the market, right? So, I mean, that is something you feel I, is, I, is I, relevant yeah. to this... I'm not talking about Soto now. I'm talking yeah. about historical contract conduct by owners that make good business decisions. The average annual values of players are not measured by length of contract as much as they are by the fact that we know the precedent of the younger player, the true superstar younger player, always gets more than the short-term veteran pitcher. And you saw it in Trout's contract, uh, where he came in and the veteran pitchers were making in the, in the you know, I got Scherzer at 30 million, and then follow from that became, um, you know, Price and Kershaw and the group. But Trout measured above that. And, and the reason for that, their contracts were, were shorter in length. Uh, they were older. And the AAV rose because it was good business for the Angels to, to do that. And so my point is, as we go through the, the stations of sport, I remember when the NBA contracts were in the 20s and people thought it was unfathomable that something would be at that level. And the answer is the revenues responded. Now we see NBA contracts that are in the 50s and 60s. So, and we see NFL contracts that are in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And that model says to me from the past of doing this that we're going to see repetitive, good business decisions by everyone to say when the revenues increase, I have more to do, more to invest in with this one great player. Is it a good model for me? And in the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, it's always turned to that because you want the best players. Just, just because Soto is the biggest story in our industry right now, Scott, I wonder if I could put a bow on it by asking you a two-part question. One is, I don't think you answered if you think now he will be traded. Like, do you think, you, you mentioned how valuable this player is, both in age, 
control for another two-plus seasons and quality, including postseason quality, he's proven. So could the Nationals even fathom getting enough to move this player pre-sale? And then the second one is you've been through all the rodeos you could be through. which is, And so my question is, the kind of money you're talking about, do you think it takes an open bidding process to get where you are, which means that Soto will ultimately have to be a free agent to get the kind of value you're speaking about? Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, you it, it, again, it depends on uh, if if there's an owner out there that is all about winning. Remember, you get Juan Soto for one, two, three postseason runs, and have complete control over him. That has a, a, a substantial value to a club that has coordinated a body of talent that says, in the next three or four years, I'm going to be a winning club. And I'm going to go all in to do something. On the other side of it is, so that gives great motivation to a few clubs who are in that position to get to that, trade for him, to trade for him, and to give more than they would otherwise give because their model is at a height of that window where they've built this over a five-year plan to be at that 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 Everest of trying to achieve that rare goal of winning one championship, if not two. And normally clubs will give up more than uh, you would expect because it's that time, it's that moment in, in their career, in uh, the career of the owner uh, and, and winning world championships when you haven't won in a while to do that, that feeds that frenzy. On the other side of it is, if I'm the general manager that hopes to sustain his career and I'm trading Juan Soto, the first question is, am I getting anything like Juan Soto back? And the answer to that will be, I don't know of any club that thinks they have a young Juan Soto that's going to trade for Juan Soto because the fact of the matter is they would just keep the existing Juan Soto. And so uh, then you have to answer the question of where am I going to trade Juan Soto knowing that I've got to explain to the new ownership who I hope to work for that these four players are going to create value that exceeds that of Juan Soto. You know, I've been in this business a while, and I remember the old, uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to sign Greg Maddox, and I'm going to sign three other players. I've been down that road many times, and I would say it's a very low percentage that when you have someone who's extraordinary, who is constantly <laughs> pushing the dynamic. Well, you know, you got to remember that Juan Soto, when you're talking about 10 years of extraordinary performance, uh, before he's even 33 <laughs> I mean, the, the surplus value of that in our game is in the near billion dollars to a team. So he, he's, he's a unique case. And you, I, if I'm a general manager, I, I, as a conservatively to make sure that I'm not known, even though I've done a great body of work, I can't be known as the person who traded Juan Soto for. And remember, you only have to look at the Mookie Betts trade. Everyone's still talking about Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts, Mookie Betts. But I don't know how many people can remember who Mookie Betts was traded for. Yeah, I can, I can remember, but I don't yeah. think too many other people yeah. can remember. Um, you, you mentioned the franchise value um, and the interest on the ownership. Um, you know, I've spoken to some Nats people, and um, they, they sounded like they thought they had been hopeful uh, that, that maybe they could get something done. I mean, um, how did you look at the? Did you think that, um, that this was just... I don't want to put it 
pejoratively, but window dressing? Did you think it was just maybe if he takes it, we'll increase our franchise value? Did you, what did you, because they're now leaving the scene. They're not going to be with the team anymore. It's a little unusual to make this move at this time. And then the other thing is, how is he doing? We saw him yesterday. He handled everything with aplomb. He was fantastic. But I think at some point he said he was a little uncomfortable with the situation. So how's he doing? And what did you think the Nats were exactly trying to do here? As far as Juan's perspective, what is most difficult is that we've been, we've had many offers and many discussions with the, with the Nationals and their ownership, and it's been conducted in, in complete privacy. And I think that's what Juan hoped for, and that's why the dialogue continued. But no player likes to go, and immediately when these things get into the marketplace, all of his peers come to him, and all of a sudden, a lot of players, particularly veteran players, like to believe that they want to help one. They want to reach out to him. They want to discuss this. They want to give counsel. They want to give advice. And in doing so, the players, they want to go to the ballpark and see their peers, and they want to play baseball, and they don't want to discuss these things. They, they've been discussing it with myself and his legal counsel. You know, we're, we're, we're working together all the time through this. He's been just given eons of information about futuristic values, economics of the league. And the great thing is that Juan Soto is a very, very bright guy. So, you know, we have 140 people that work for the Boris Corporation, and we've got a litany of, of, of data and information that goes into great depths about every decision that he makes. But Juan has to make the decision. So when he goes to the ballpark, he doesn't really want uh, the grade of the do or the don't about you know, why or what he should do it, because everyone would normally talk about a player about the brilliance of his performance or ask him about what his routines are so that they can understand him as a player. Well, this creates a, a different focus that no player wants. And they certainly don't want it when they're talking baseball. But the great thing about being a great young player in today's game is that this comes up so often that you become seasoned. You become used to it. And so, like... Juan goes in and he's he had his press conference yesterday and I'm standing there like any good lawyer would wondering whether he's going to get the wrong question. And he manages everything beautifully. And then he goes out and I, I told him, I told my staff, I said, he's going to win the home run derby. Why? Because you know what? His, he's there. He had to stay up all night. He had to fly from D.C. to the West Coast on a commercial flight, the Atlanta Braves got here five minutes. They're playing the same game. They have a charter. They got there five, five hours earlier. And yet, he's up all night. I said, no expectation. He's going to go out. He's right out. This guy is going to just be himself. And sure enough, he performed it at the greatest of levels because he's Juan Soto. But the, the idea of why would a team do this? And the answer they would do it is, for me, is that they want all the suitors to know that they have the greatest asset in the game. And, and they have put a mark on that greatest asset that is monetary. And by the way, they're selling the team for a monetary value. So it's akin to, excuse me, let me take you to the backyard and show you my ocean view. So <laughs> it is something that uh, I understand why they would do it. I know the merit of it. But the thing is, it, it's something for a player that when you are – dealing with characteristics that are custom and practice of how players think and how they're valued, you would never offer a player uh, something that is a brilliant player like Juan Soto at his age 
an AAV that is so far down the ladder because you know immediately that he's not going to accept it. Scott, uh, obviously, as the top story in the sport, we could talk about this forever, but as we're doing this, the All-Star Game is today. Your time is not uh, infinite, so I want to make sure we cover some other things. As we sit here, the, the, the final rounds of the draft are still ongoing you had many picks in this, but notably the top three, sons of major league players, uh, Jackson Holiday, Drew Jones. Their fathers were outstanding major league players. But I think for us, especially in the marketplace where John and I work, Kumar Raka is a fascinating number three pick. He was picked 10th last year and then not signed by the Mets because of what they felt were physical uh, reasons. Scott, are the New York Mets going to regret not finalizing that contract for a guy who went seven picks earlier this year? I told Steve Cohn that while you're an owner, you just have to listen to the people that appraise certain elements of drafted players. And, and we strongly disagree with the appraisal that the Mets placed on Kumar. Um, we had said that to him um, as an advocate. I'm sure if I'm an owner, I'm going to look at this and say, I expect the advocate to say that for the player. Uh, our medical staff... We have our own internal medical staff. We are very thorough about this. We had the best orthopedic surgeons in America examine Kumar, and we said that there is nothing that's going to affect his pitching ability. Uh, there are always fuzzy MRIs. Max Scherzer's MRI when he signed was not particularly great and, frankly, never has been. But the thing of it is it's what the orthopedists say are going to be the primary factors for um, what, what makes a player healthy. Um, and if you had to make a minor adjustment in the process, it would be a minor element, and he would be back to throwing at the levels that Kumar is capable of. And as I said a year ago, someone's not going to be very happy about this. And in the end, I think that Kumar, uh, and he was examined by one of the most prominent orthopedic surgeons uh, in America, in uh, Neil Alatrage and uh, Dr. Meister in Texas, uh, all these reviews came back and said he passed. The Mets didn't believe that. And now, ironically, the Texas Rangers draft him, and their doctor all along says that uh, he is uh, certainly physically capable of carrying out a major league career. Medical dynamic, really not a scouting dynamic, truthfully. Um, and that, that happens sometimes in sport, but um, I know this, that it was a difficult moment for Kumar, and, and, I, and obviously when you're here to protect athletes as an attorney for them, you hate to see that happen. But on the other side of it is I understand that, that medical opinions are what they are, and in this case there just happens to be a very sound disagreement as to uh, Kumar's future between uh, the medical community that's with the Rangers and that that's with the Mets. You know, we had three guests uh, previous to you. Uh, one of them you're quite familiar with, uh, Alex Rodriguez, who you represented uh, from the very early stages of his career through a long portion of his career um, and certainly got him a contract that's uh, often cited as one of the better ones in, in baseball history and sports history, the $252 million 10-year deal with an opt-out, which now a lot of the, most of the great players seem to, to get that opt-out. Well, when we had him on, he suggested that players shouldn't really listen to their agents too much and that they should really take, it, take the bull by the horns or whatever you want to say and do it themselves, do their own negotiating. Um, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, 
you represented him. You know, you obviously got him some good deals. That one in particular is, uh, you know, iconic, as you would say. Um, what, do, what do you think about that idea that the players should be negotiating or really handling their own negotiations? Well, I think the first thing is who you're negotiating with. Um, when I hear that from people, and I've heard it before, um, they usually like to say those things when their deals are done and they've used legal counsel to get them, <laughs> number one, because there was no opt-out that existed until I did Alex's first contract. And it was something that I brought to him and he didn't know what it was or what it meant, as you wouldn't expect a player to do, why the strategy would work this way and create it. And frankly, it worked beautifully because the opt-out came in a year that Alex had a tremendous MVP season and it allowed him to be a free agent at 30-31. And remember, Jeter did not have that opt-out in his contract. And he wasn't able to opt out till 34. And you saw the difference where in A-Rod's second contract, he got $275 million, And I think Jeter got somewhere in the 50s or 60s for his. So that opt-out allowed a, a very optimal position and leverage for a player to go through and, and remember, it also increases choices. But, you know, when you're dealing with owners, these men are extraordinarily bright. They are veteran negotiators. This is, this is no different than a veteran poker player who reads every blink and every such. And for a player to put himself into an arena where he's going to place himself in front of an owner to negotiate, I would suggest that you would be... It's no different than saying, look, I, I understand this is what I want. I want my appendix out. No, I'm going to do surgery myself. And, and the idea of it is you're, you're going to exclude the surgeon and the experience and the time. I find that to be something that is really beyond the, the real truth of the matter of how things work. Now, remember, being a lawyer, players direct every sequence, every step every element and if the mention is that you sit down and you let the player be the boss of the situation that is true at inception i do that with high school players because remember i say you are employing legal counsel you run the day learn that you're going to continually go through that everything we do is at your direction we're going to give you an abundance of information Give us the direction. Let us do that. And then we go in and negotiate your wants with a very, very veteran negotiator. And I think the reason we have lawyers in our world is that the wants of someone are given. We know who the boss is. You're a fiduciary. You operate under the direction and control over the people you work for. And then you carry that into the negotiation, but you're doing it with the expertise and dynamic of the owners know that they're not dealing with someone who's never negotiated anything. The owners know they're not dealing with a player who's emotional. And also, the owners, when, you're, when you have a player attempting to negotiate for himself, they know how to manipulate your dynamics because they know what players, and they've studied players, and they're prepared for that negotiation. So it's a very different theater when a player is attempting to negotiate for himself rather than having legal counsel do it at his direction. You know, Scott, I, I wrote about this recently and as such a seminal moment for me. I remember at the winter meetings between 1995 and 1996, 
I saw you go into a room with Bob Watson, and it hit me for the first time. Well, that's not going to work out well for the Yankees. <laughs> like, I got a trained lawyer who's a superb negotiator and a designated hitter going in, and the Yankees walked out with Kenny Rogers, which wasn't real good for them. And you're going to love this segue. He came from Texas, and he really didn't fit New York. That has happened again, but at a level I don't think John and I have ever seen with Joey Gallo. Uh, he got traded to the Yankees. Did you like that segue, by the way? Uh, the, he got traded to the Yankees, uh, and last year went poorly, and they thought, well, maybe the second year. Nope, second year has gone worst. We're doing this about 10 or so days before the trade deadline. Do you, do you think there's any way of fixing this, or does Joey Gallo need to move to another locale between now and 6 p.m. on August 2nd? Well, there are always things you can do. We all know Joey's gifted. We know he's a gold glove, multiple gold glove outfielder. We know he has extraordinary power. We know that he's hit 40 home runs on, you know, in multiple seasons. Um, the skill, the talent, and everything is there. The question is, what do we do to get the execution potential to a higher level, to a normal standard? And in doing so, um, you know, my job is that I, I can't worry about what Cash is going to do or the Yankees are going to do. My job is to communicate with Joey as best we can, go through the dynamic of what he's saying to us, um, get him as much as information as we can so that, you know, he can progress where he's at. I, can, I tell players, I, I'm not here to talk about what life would be beyond what uniform you're wearing, and the job is to... You know, he had a nice home run the other day. And, uh, you know, defensively, he's been playing at very, very high levels. And he gets on base a lot because he's walking at rates now that he was before. So we, we certainly have things to work on. But as to far as what the Yankees are going to do, I do know that there are a lot of teams that feel that Joey uh, in their market, in their uniform, would be more of the normal than uh, what he is in New York. And, and, uh, but right now, the idea, he's on a winning team. He's on a team that's doing very well. He can be a major contributor to it, and really the job of us is to get him to um, most comfortable and get him back to being at his norm. Scott, I wish we could go on all day. I know, again, your time is pressing here. It's All-Star Day. So as a wrap-up, one more player who did have success in New York. I wonder if we could wrap up with this and maybe is off the radar a little bit, and that's Michael Conforto. Had great success in New York. He hasn't played this year. He's been injured. We've talked a few times about the possibility that he might even come back and play as a hitter this year. Can you give us an idea, post-surgery, where is he at, and what's the likelihood that he can help a pennant contender in 2022? Well, ironically, uh, now that the draft is over, is that there's no compensation associated with signing Michael, and we've got four phone calls this morning, and uh, Michael's, uh, he has extraordinary healing powers, um, and the doctors are saying, as we walk through this, there's a potential for him uh, potentially uh, being, uh, you know, playing and hitting in September, certainly. And, uh, and we have to see over the next, you know, July and August course how his rehab goes to fulfill that expectation. But um, there is very strong interest by some very good teams. And, and, and Just give us in alphabetical order the teams. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, well, let's see. Um, uh, they're uh, uh, all in the United States except one. 
Did we get one? Yeah, no. <laughs> we have one. I, I don't think there's many Puerto Rican teams or uh, Asian teams that are, are after Michael right now, but all the, I think all 30 major league teams would love to add a guy like Michael Conforto. Scott, uh, incredibly kind of you to spend some time with us here. Uh, we do, uh, it's not just something we're saying. You are very involved in the draft. You're very involved with the Futures game. You're very involved with the All-Star game with all the clients you have at all of those levels. So we know you broke away to give John and I some time, and we truly appreciate you joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I want to thank the audience. They've been very gracious, and it's uh, yeah. very, very kind to yeah. be here. Really yeah. 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 Give it up for Scott Boris. We'll close out the show next. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John, uh, Scott Boris, as we expected, was a tremendous guest and... We pointed out his time is valuable, right? Just to sum up, <laughs> Shea Langelaers, one of his clients, won the Futures Game MVP. Yeah. He had the first three picks in the draft, and then he had the home run derby champion yeah. on Monday night in Juan Soto. He's kind of touched the whole uh, ambiance around this. Soto won the, uh, uh, won the home run derby. He's the biggest story in the sport. I could ask a detailed question, but why don't I say Juan Soto and see what's on your mind after what Scott said? Well, first of all, the negotiations is what he's going to know the most about. And certainly he talked about the uh, AAV, the average annual value. Uh, it was clear uh, that he just they just felt that that twenty nine point three million dollar average was really not in the ballpark. I think he mentioned that it was fifteen or twenty guys who were be ahead of him, and um, you know that he just didn't feel that it was appropriate. And I mean, the, frankly, the reaction I've got around baseball is nobody's shocked that he turned this down. I mean, I can't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, laugh at this offer or, or sniff at it or whatever you want to call it uh but uh, you know obviously it was a record offer 440 million dollars but they had aav when you give it 15 years and and frankly he's 23 years old so he's going to get a very long deal 15 years uh makes some sense but uh, you know when you've got the scherzer deal out there and you know he thinks it's relevant i mean i wouldn't see why it wouldn't be irrelevant completely as the nats seem to think um you know the aav he felt was not in the ballpark of where they're looking you know, John, what stuck out, stuck out to me was he exerted, maybe it was subtle, it wasn't too subtle to me, a lot of pressure on Mike Rizzo. Like, do you really want to do this trade? Do you really <laughs> want to be the guy who trades 23-year-old Juan Soto? And as we know, over the years, a lot of teams trade a dollar, but they don't get four quarters back. They get a lot less than a dollar back. And it's hard to believe that you're going to get exactly that value. Because I think he said one of the key things, and I think it's underappreciated in some degree. You don't just get Juan Soto for the rest of the year. You got three pennant races with Juan Soto. We've seen him under kind of extreme pressure twice now in his career. Once in the 2019 mm. postseason, he was great. Once was last night at the home run derby. He came through there also. And I mean, I think that if you're a team in a pennant race, we're talking about arguably the toughest out in the sport who's proven he can handle the toughest assignment for three pennant races. How do you even give up <laughs> enough 
And I think Scott was saying, good luck with that, Mike Rizzo. Yeah. This is what you'd like to make your legacy. Well, obviously, the camp, the Boris camp ask is, is great for Soto, appropriately so. And the ask on a trade should be enormous. And, you know, I think looking at it from certainly a bigger, greater distance than Scott. Now, Scott's on control of the trade, but, I, you know, I'm just looking at it from a distance. It's not going to be easy because... Um, the contending teams are not going to want to give up major league players, which I would think you're not going to just trade them for a bunch of maybes. You've got to get major league, some major league players back, back. And then the non-contending teams, well, he's not of any use to them or limited use to them this year if they're not going to be in the pennant race. So um, it's not going to be easy. I think that at this point, there's a good chance he's going to be traded, but it probably, in my way of looking at it, will be after the season when all 30 teams can do it and and all 30 teams can give up major league pieces that aren't helping them in a pennant race. So it, it is not going to be easy no matter how much pressure or non-pressure he may put on. I love the relationship with Rizzo and Boris. They were very, they've always been very, very close. Uh, you know, Ted Lerner has usually handled these negotiations, which Scott has had with many times with this team because he had Scherzer, obviously signed with them originally, one of the best free agent contracts ever from a team standpoint. Strasburg it was Scott, is Scott's as well, and obviously Harper. So, I mean, they've... Rendon. Uh, they Right. All, basically, all of their superstars have been Scott's clients, but he's normally on these big deals or frequently dealt with uh, Ted Lerner, the owner, who I think is close to 97 years old at this point, something like that. So Mike Rizzo, it's a funny relationship because, you know, I think, frankly, you know, they're so close to begin with. Remember when Rizzo was the scouting director in Arizona, he'd always take Scott's players. He took Scherzer. He took J.D. Drew. There are others. I mean, they nothing... You know, untoward about it. They all turned out to be good. good. Scherzer's turned out to be a Hall of Famer. But I think it's funny to see these two guys battling now after they've been so close. Yeah, it's, it, it is, you know, no doubt interesting. It's going to be interesting as we go down to August 2nd at 6 p.m. John, I'm just going to throw one at you because you mentioned it would be hard to trade major league players. And I wonder if we could wrap with this. So I talked to an executive today who said, you can't take a player off the table here. If you take a player off the table, the right. Nationals t- should say bleep you and hang up. Like well, this Tatis, is, yes, I think Tatis. No, no, I meant he meant this person meant your top prospect. Your okay, top prospect. sure, of course. If you were the Yankees, would you begin a trade? Anthony Volpe, Glaber Torres, feeling like Lemayu could play second, Donaldson could play third. Yeah. It's a lot of risk with Donaldson yeah. because of the injuries, but. You know, you still have maybe Peraza in the minor leagues to come up and help you yeah. there. And then two or three other prospects. It is trading from your major league team. It is giving up your best prospect. Yeah. Do you do that you know, for, for it and get a little leverage maybe even on Judge this offseason? I mean, I do that. I mean, you know, it's easy for me to say I'm not paying the bills. I do uh, too. Yeah, I mean, I would trade prospects. A lot of people are always afraid of trading prospects. You know, uh, our producer on the way in here mentioned a few young players. You know, he's a Mets guy. And, oh, I don't want to trade this guy or that. I mean, one Soto is you know, one of the greatest hitters we've ever seen who's 23 years old. He affects you know, And if he races. goes to the Mets, they could sign him up for as long as they want to. It's, maybe, it's not just two and a half years. So, you know, I wouldn't hold... The pieces I'd hold back would be like Tatis, you know, yeah. Autant, you know, somebody like that. Not any prospect. You can't hold up prospects. I, I'm with you. I think prospects are the most uh, overstated, overvalued thing in the sport. Most guys, you know... 
I always encourage people, go back and look at the top 100, top right. 10 from 5, 10, 15 years ago. Your team's top 5, 10. It's not quite as good as you thought in real time. John, we took the show on the road for the first time. We are doing it again next week. It's Monday night, July 25th. Is the night before the Subway Series. We'll be at the Paley Center, which is on 52nd Street in New York. Our special guests for that show are going to be Ron Darling and David Cohn, who are going to help us set up the first Subway Series of the year between what is right now two first-place teams. Uh, you could get tickets at nypost.com slash the show live. That's nypost.com slash the show live. Again, 6 p.m. at the Paley Center, 25 West 25th Street. That's next Monday. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. Thanks to, you mentioned our producer and Met fan, Jake <laughs> Brown. Uh, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And write in a nice review for me and John. We could really use it. Our egos could use it. Uh, and Joel, let's thank the Office Bar and Grill. Yes. And let's All thank right. Cadillac for sponsoring this show. Thanks to your Tri-State Cadillac dealers as and well. And the audience. Let's not forget the audience. Thank you. Give it up. Give it up. What a terrific audience. A lot of Dodger fans out there. All right, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> now our egos are overinflated. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Next Monday, 6 p.m., Paley Center, Ron Darling, David Cohn, and every Tuesday after that with the show, Joel Sherman and John Heyman.